0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. This is your co-host, Shahnaz Haqqani. In today's episode, we speak with Abla Hassan about her recent book, Decoding the Egalitarianism of the Qur'an, Retrieving Lost Voices on Gender, published with Lexington Books in 2020. In Decoding the Egalitarianism of the Qur'an, Hassan aims to provide new interpretations of Qur'anic verses related to gender and family or at least verses believed by many others to be about the family through a Qur'an-only approach. She shows that it is possible, meaningful, and necessary to read the Qur'an outside of any external sources such as hadiths, fiqh, or Islamic jurisprudence, tafsir or interpretations of the Qur'an, and other traditional ways through which the Qur'an has historically been read. This allows her to offer new interpretations of many verses, such as those related to polygyny, the hijab, child marriage, the claim that men have a degree of superiority over women, and verse 434, which is traditionally believed to grant husbands the right to physically discipline their wives. Using her background in the linguistics of the Qur'an, she analyzes the textual context of each verse in question, as well as in specific key terms to highlight what she argues are the original intended meanings of these verses. For example, she interrogates common understandings of the audiences of many gender-related verses believed to be men or husbands and offers alternative possibilities. The book is an important intervention in the discourse on Islam and gender, and it will be of interest to specialist and non-specialists, including non-academic audiences interested in women's and gender studies, Quranic studies, religion and gender, and tafsir studies. The book will also be of use in undergraduate and graduate classes related to gender and religion. In our discussion today, she explains her choice to rely on the Quran alone for her arguments, including the importance of a linguistic and semantic approach to understanding the scripture. She shares with us what some of the problems in existing scholarship on gender and Islam are whether from feminist engagements or the historical patriarchal ones. And she shares some of her interpretations of some verses, such as female agency in the Qur'an, Maryam's prophethood, polygyny, the hijab, the idea of men's daraja or a degree of superiority over women, and, of course, Qur'anic verse 434, among others. This is our discussion. Hi Abla, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your new book, Decoding the Egalitarianism of the Quran, Retrieving Lost Voices and Gender. I thoroughly enjoyed it, so I'm very excited to be sitting here and talking with you about it today.
1: Thank you so much, Anas. Thank you. It's an honor to be interviewed by you personally. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> You're very kind. I'm yeah, I'm I'm very much looking forward to it, as I was telling you. I'm doing a vlog on it for my, for my What the Patriarchy vlog, where I talk about Islamic feminist arguments um, and works on Islamic feminism, the idea of mainstreaming Islamic feminism. So I'm really, really looking forward to it because there, there were a lot of arguments in here um, and interpretations that I hadn't thought about myself and that I
1: haven't seen elsewhere. So it was very innovative in that sense as well. So thank you for it. Thank you so much. And let me start by acknowledging I'm personally a, a big fan of your uh, channel as well. And I, I got introduced to it uh, very uh, late, uh, but, you know, I fall in love with it immediately. And I was so excited when you emailed me first asking for this interview, because um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of your uh, views and the channel and the whole idea of um, trying to... Um, you know, the <laughs> to, to find and to locate this uh, true Islam, which we, we all keep talking about, but we're finding hardship into identifying. So thank right. you, Shehnaz, for all what you do. Let me start by saying this. I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much.
0: Um, I, uh, so let's begin with, we have a tradition on this podcast um, to ask our guests to tell us about their journey to the field. What brought you
1: here? Um, well, in, um, I graduated in uh, 2013 with a PhD in philosophy of language. Uh, my BA was in philosophy from Damascus University back in Syria, and my master's degree was in philosophy as well from Nebraska University. And I believe it was my training with my advisor, my great, great advisor, Professor Edward Becker, Uh, who is a professor of philosophy of language and our UNL expert on philosophy of religion, which led me to Quranic hermeneutics, because the idea, I believe, is very simple, to decode the Quranic message and to locate this uh, missing true Islam, we were just mentioning trying to find a true Islam. I believe all what we need to do is to go back to the original text. It's all there. It's all embodied in the text which we need to give a second chance instead of satisfying by referring back to it in a retrospective way. Now, my while my training with my advisor was not on Quranic studies per se, the sensitivity of uh, to, to language and the deep consideration of what every sentence, word, and even every letter referred to is something I, for sure, I think I got from my advisor. Hmm. Um, my advisor was generous generous enough to meet with me uh, once a week, sometimes for extended hours. And he used to stop me sometimes for every word I, I would say, uh, to double check what I mean and uh, whether I was referring to events or types of events, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, You know, Shahnaz, I imagine him laughing to, to hear my words. Uh, I, I remember like sometimes when he kept picking on everything I say, I was like, come on, it's not even my native language here. But gradually I started paying attention to what we really mean when we say things, Mm -hmm. Uh, references, names, synonyms, repetition, uh, almost all aspects of each language, all details, the, the delicate details, which we almost never pay attention to, uh, at the end of the day, they might be the key to set us free from our man-made projections and take us back to the authentic message of the divine text. Um, We were just mentioning this before the interview uh, and I'm gonna be quoting you. You you emailed me back after you read uh, the book and you, you said, I'm struck by some of your interpretations that are so new and innovative, and now that I think about it, even obvious that I can't believe we've been missing all along, which is very true, Shahnaz. It's just there in the text. Um, it's it's as simple as that. We just need to give a text, the text, as, as a second chance uh, by being more careful to the language. Um, so this is, uh, in short, what brought me to Qur'anic hermeneutics. Mm-hmm.
0: No, and it shows the training that you have and your advisor playing this role in your life by sort of stopping you and saying, what do you mean? And is that the correct language? Is that the correct word to convey your meaning? That was very clear throughout the book. And for me, one of the most striking things was this idea of the Quran's audience, which I think we'll talk about, um, you know, where we've just assumed we've accepted historical interpretations and assumptions that we know who the Quran's audience is mm. a particular in a particular verse when, you know, I think very few of us have ever even, and, and certainly your book made that very clear, that we haven't tried to interrogate the, the assumption itself that there's a particular um, audience, and that audience is necessarily men. So, uh, yeah, no, that, the, the, the emphasis on language and the focus on specific words and the ways the Quran is making that point um, all showed very clearly throughout throughout the book. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, any? Do you want to talk specifically about the journey of this book and Maybe it's a broader relationship with, um, you know, existing sure. ideas that also yeah. must have been birth to this.
1: Sure. I can briefly comment on that. Um, it's very simple. The book is simply an attempt to allow the Qur'an to speak for itself. Now, I'm not claiming I'm providing more than my own interpretations of women-related verses, but allowing the text to speak and muting the distraction from other resources uh, which I propose as a thought experiment and as a research methodology that doesn't negate other methodologies but complements them led me to address some of the most controversial verses like in the Quran, like the famous four thirty-four, mm-hmm. and some of the most debated topics like uh, women prophethood which can be easily proven to be Quranic. So in short, this book... Um, is an attempt to provide, to propose some answers to some convoluted and thorny questions, especially after traditionalist attempts to address these issues. Um, And I'm sad to say that they didn't take us anywhere. I mean, if we just consider, for example, until when are we supposed to keep debating issues like minor marriage, for example, while the whole issue was resolved, as I argue in this, this book and Quran, for six, chapter six, uh, chapter four, verse six, which explicitly define the age of marriage as the age which one can make sound judgments. Through my career as a teacher and through my talks, I get so many questions. So, this book is an honest attempt to answer these questions. And to be more honest, uh, it's an attempt to answer my own questions. Before I, you know, I, I uh, go forward, go ahead and answer others' questions. Uh, this is a little bit off topic, Janaz, but I remember I have three boys, and I remember the first time I handed uh, uh, Zain, who's a teenager, he, he does debate, and he's very sharp, a translation of the Quran as a gift during Ramadan. And he, it took him only half an hour to come back to me and to, say, to, to refer to 434 and say, Mom, what is this? <laughs> wow. And, and you know, I was like, Zane, I, I, have, I have, you know, a response. Wait until my book get, gets published first. I'm going to get back to you with something. So the idea, you know, as parents, as educators, we need to have answers, traditional answers stopped working uh, a long time ago. And the approach, you know, of have, have a faith and you'll stop questioning, uh, because I have a faith, I'll, I'll keep questioning, you know. So basically, uh, it's a questioning everything in this book and uh, an attempt to answer some of these questions.
0: I One of the reasons I loved, and I think this whole project in general, the broader project of Islamic feminism um, and feminist approaches to understanding the Qur'an is that it just shows how complicated scriptures can be and how what, what an impact historical any one interpretation can have on people's actual lives. Um, and just today, actually, I was trying to make this point in a class of mine where we're talking about evolution and scripture and how people try to make sense of or find meaning in scriptures, utilizing new contexts and new questions and new theories and stuff to um, really to try to make sense of these scriptures. And so this project, this larger project, project of feminist interpretations, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I, it's, it's, I've become, and especially recently, I think I was having a conversation with, I want to say maybe Kisha Ali. And she yeah. pointed out to me that she, she too, she, I, th- I think it was her, but she was also pointing out that all of these are efforts. All of these are attempts to really better understand the Quran. And that for me, that, that, that conversation was so powerful because I was like, wait a minute, I finally began to understand the whole project and the whole idea of interpretations. And these are all efforts and, in my opinion, important and beautiful efforts. And they really, you know, they, they do something to the text and they do something to a person's relationship with um in this case in, in this case with our faiths as well. So uh yeah, absolutely very, very uh a great, great project um to be contributing to. You're very clear throughout the book that you're using only the Quran to make these new arguments. And in in other words, you're doing a tafsir tafsir al-Qur'an bil Quran, um a tafsir of the Quran through the Quran itself alone. Why do you do this? And I wonder also if it's really even possible to complete such a task successfully given that, in my opinion anyway, this methodology I think assumes that the text of the Quran is very clear and also that we still end up relying on non-Quranic sources such as socio-historical contexts of some of the verses. Um, So can you clarify to to our readers and listeners what an interpretation of the Qur'an using just the Qur'an means exactly.
1: Sure, sure. I'm going to try to do my best. I know I won't be able to provide a good answer in in an interview, but um, I'm going to start by referring to an interesting scene depicted in the Qur'an of the Prophet complaining in the Day of Judgment by saying, Lord, my people treat this Qur'an as something to be shunned. And this is from Quran 2530. And by the way, this is uh, the verse I opened the book with. Now, this accusation uh, uh, of leaving the Quran behind is not compatible with our experience of the Quran, which is celebrated in the lived experiences of all Muslims around the globe. But a closer look at the Quranic teachings and the way they were just overlooked in interpretation and the everyday practice I think should motivate us to rethink the text. Um, I adopt a strict application of tafsir al-Qur'an bil-Qur'an, which might sound challenging, I agree, and almost impossible. But, however, you know, uh, such a methodology, which only sounds impossible and difficult on the long run, can save us time and effort. Time and effort that otherwise will be just made to reconcile the Quranic message and the later exegetical development or efforts to reconcile different elements of sirah which don't add up or even efforts to reconcile hadith with Quran or even contradicting hadith. Um, This methodology, and uh, this is my personal view, is more consistent than cherry picking and selective methodologies, many of us are forced to adopt in Quranic studies due to the embarrassment some elements bring us. Uh, Let me use an example here. For example, many reformers and feminists quote only what seems to be more consistent with a more bright image of Islam and try to leave behind or shovel under the rug what can't serve their needs. Personally, I disagree with this approach. So either we share everything or you take a different route, which uh, the thing I did in my research in this book and Inshallah Incoming Books. Mm -hmm. What adds to this is the globalization of knowledge and the accessibility of information, which don't allow such outdated techniques. Nowadays, I, I always tell my students, You can check the credibility of what I'm saying the same minute I'm saying it. You can Google what I'm citing and what I'm leaving behind intentionally or subconsciously before I end my quote. So appealing to no authority but the Quran, I believe, sets you free from the uh, moral, uh, academic, and epistemic obligation uh, to deal with later exegetical development that didn't stay faithful to the Quranic message. I totally see your concern, and I see it as a valid concern. It's a valid question. Can the Qur'an be the key to unlock the Qur'anic message? Now, uh, to be clear, if we appeal to what we've been taught, the Qur'an is a difficult book to understand, and the only way to understand it is the way that goes through the scrutiny of imams, clerics, congregations, religious and political authoritative institutions. However... This is not out of many reasons. This is not the case, at least, uh, in which the Quran describes the Quran. Uh, In in fact, the Quran assures it as a divine commitment to make it an accessible book. I'm quoting from uh, 5417, we have made it easy to learn lessons from the Quran. And in 7519, we read, it's up to us to make it clear. Places in which the Quran is introduced as a coherent, clear, and consistent book are more than I can quote here. But what is important to keep in mind is the gap that we shouldn't overlook between Islam um, and I would say all religions as a liberal, personal, spiritual guidance, and religions as controlling institutions. Finally, I'll end with this. While I'm, I introduce a very strict uh, application of based on opinion interpretation, I should give credit to a long history, to the long history of this school, which has never agreed with the hegemony of based on heritage school, a hegemony that unfortunately we're still paying its high price until today.
0: Thank you for that. That's very, very thorough and very beautiful answer. Thank you, Janaz. Um, so related to that question also, what are, what are some current problems with the way that women and men are talked about in the Quran? And, and not just as seen in the traditional patriarchal approaches, but also as seen in Islamic feminist
1: approaches to the Quran. Mainly, I believe it's, uh, it's very problematic to keep borrowing lenses to read the Quran through. We can't, as feminists, criticize patriarchy or the political elite for prioritizing their best interest and merely replace their male-centered interpretations by female-centered interpretations. Because Shahnaz, what we will be doing, we're gonna be just doing the same mistake. Only, we're gonna be only replacing what they might view today as what we might view today as outdated ideologies with what we view as liberal and egalitarian ideologies the text should speak for itself. For example, many feminist attempts to solve, the, to solve the many problems associated with the traditional interpretation of 434 couldn't stay faithful to the text itself. And therefore, in my interpretation, I don't assume any mistakes in the text, I don't add anything, I don't delete anything from the literal text itself, or uh, I don't deviate away from what the text itself indicates. Another example is my reading of the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, And here I'm highlighting only one scene, which is the scene of of Adam's disobedience. According to the many evidences I introduce and according to the readings of other prominent scholars, it seems that uh, uh, the Quran blames Adam uh, more for for God's disobedience. Uh, Now I remember... I had back and forth emails with my editor as we were finalizing the book. And she was trying to suggest whether it's better to have Adam and and Eve both sharing the blame. And I thought (laughs) that would be cool and fine, but this is not what I read in the text. So in short, it is, uh, uh, we should avoid uh, doing what we've been criticizing others for doing. We should stop projecting ourselves on the text. And uh, I would say we should be uh, chasing and arresting ourselves uh, every time we try to project our own ideologies on the text. We should be just honest into just reading the text and listening to to the text. Mm
0: -hmm. That's really funny that you say that, that the editor (laughs) wanted you to. (laughs) She was 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 nice
1: enough to try to question so many points, um, and this was one of the points that I insisted. Uh, this is what I read, and this is what I, I, I should be saying, whether you know I like it or not.
0: Yeah. No, I use the I use the example of um, the, you know the, the the disobedience of Adam's uh, because the Quran does. I mean, it blames either Adam alone or Shaitan or both Adam and Eve, um, and so I use this a lot in my classes to show that. Uh, the scholars historically still somehow managed to read, you know, that Eve was the evil one. Uh, uh, so, that
1: is very know, true. It's,
0: it's really that's it's true. remarkable how it, it's absolutely <laughs> remarkable because existing, you know, that was an existing knowledge at the time, and so it, you know, it made sense that they weren't gonna like be way too creative with it. But, you know, it also shows how, how uncreative patriarchy is. It only
1: relies I'm, on... I'm so happy you were mentioning that because, you know, this is one of the uh, main points that keeps, uh, kept puzzling me. The text is asserting something and interpretations are not only elaborating on it or a little bit, you know, going into details. They're, they're contradicting the text, just bluntly contradicting mm-hmm. the text. Which means, you know, uh, the text was not read carefully, uh, either intentional or it was just an attempt to uh, prioritize other agendas or the, the, the so many other reasons I try to explain in the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So speaking of interpre- interpretations of the specific um, themes or specific points in the Quran, then, I enjoyed, I mean, many of your, uh, these findings, these new readings of the women-related verses in the Quran, and we probably won't have time to get into all of them, but let's definitely cover some of them. So talk to us about the notorious 434. Mm. You offer a lot here that I think is different from, and in disagreement with, much existing material on 434. Um, So can you walk us through your interpretation of it or parts of it? Um, I'm interested in the idea of qiwama and yeah. whether it's about all women or about wives specifically, who the audience of 434 is. And
1: mm, mm, Sure. Uh, to be honest with you, I've always had problems with 434. I still remember in a conversation with uh, our awesome scholar, Amir Hussain, I collected my courage as if I'm revealing a big secret. And I said, uh, I have a problem with 434. He simply said, Abla, we all have a problem with 434. <laughs> you know, at that time, as simple as his answer was, coming from someone like him was a big deal. Because usually what we get as feminists is either, and mm-hmm. I shared that with him later on, you know, either reproaching uh, 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 answers or preaching answers. Uh, have, have a faith, sister, and you'll stop, you know, getting annoyed by these interpretations, which is, which is the opposite, uh, this verse is more problematic than any other verse in the Quran. In the book, I provide twenty detailed uh, arguments in favor of a new interpretation, which I, you know, I want uh, clearly. I want to be able to introduce here, but I can only refer to uh, some quick uh, observations. Now, in it's a traditional. Uh, I'm assuming everyone are familiar with 434, but a quick reminder in its uh, traditional understanding, uh, divorce is commonly interpreted as providing husbands three correction methods uh, to uh, deal with uh, wives, their wives that starts by reproaching escalates to withholding sex and ends by the permissibility of striking uh, their wives. However, Uh, This interpretation not only contradicts the rest of the Qur'an, but also contradicts the prophetic behavior as well. And this speaks at least for those who insist on adding other resources other than the Qur'an. Attempts to soften the the tune of the verse by suggesting light beating with a feather, for example, uh, with all respect to these attempts, but they're not Qur'anic, right? Uh, hitting with a feather is not hitting in the first place. Uh, it's tickling, right? And, uh, you know, imagine if a wife complains to her husband that you, you, you're you beating me, but you're not using a feather. He's going to be like, uh, seriously, right? So right. with all respect to all these attempts, those attempts, attempts are not Quranic. Uh, but more seriously, the mere idea of giving one gender the right to correct the other gender due to gender-based superiority. The whole idea is alien to the Quran, as I make it clear in the book. But how can we then interpret 434? And how can we reconcile this verse with the rest of the Quran? Some feminists tried to argue for meanings of daraba, which means uh, to hit, and to argue that it means something other than hitting or striking, However, why I understand where they're coming from um, and, and their attempts to deal with the embarrassment the traditional understanding of 434 brings, um, I believe staying faithful to what the text literally says is a key to exegetical credibility. Because if we allow ourselves to manipulate the verse or any verse because it says what we don't like to hear, hear, you know, And then uh, we do the same with other verses. So, why should we stop with a verse or a sit with a set of verses? This is a dangerous route, which, on the long run, I believe, brings more harm than good. Now, back to the verb itself, right? So, the verb doesn't appear in the Quran as a root in abstract. It's precisely conjugated, like all verbs in Arabic. And due to its precise conjugation, because it appears like so clearly it indicates a command given to a group of men or a mixed group to hit an absent group of women, which is the object here. The verb can't stand for any other meaning other than to hate or to strike, unless followed by a preposition like darabaan to ignore, right? But it's not followed by a preposition as well, and therefore any state of this, these uh, uh, lexical gymnastics, which are understandable at the end of the day, you know for sure. I am trying, or or I try to listen to the verse itself, let, to to let the simple observations lead me through it. For example, the verse doesn't say husbands. Rather, it says men. The verse doesn't say wives. Rather, it says women. The addressee, the point you mentioned, uh, Shahnaz, the addressee in the verse are not husbands. The addressee, as we can learn from the preceding and as well as from the following verses, is not husbands but the community of believers, both men and women. Therefore, and due to 20 arguments, I, I, you know, it's going to be boring if I go over all of these arguments in, in this interview. I propose that the verse is referring to a command given to the community with recommendations of three correctional methods to deal with female violators of law. The recommendations uh, start with reproaching, which stands for today's warning, like court warnings. escalates to imprisonments which used to take place in bedrooms and finally can escalate to beating if approved by the local authorities. The verse, uh, in short, has nothing to do with domestic violence, let alone uh, recommending dom- domestic violence. And more importantly, it's not even related to any marital context. And of course, I invite readers to read the 20 arguments because I go into. Uh, so many other details. I go in the the verse, like I take every word, every expression, uh, and I end up by supporting this uh, new reading uh, uh, via using 20 arguments.
0: I think, I I wonder if somebody might say, well, why is, and I I feel like either in 434 in a different, or in a different verse, but you kind of, you, you kind of address this question. And so I was convinced um, but for our readers, what? How might you respond to the question that why is the Quran only asking for you know a communal punishment for women? What do we mm. do with women who with men who are recalcitrant or yeah.
1: not That's a them? very good question. So for some, for some, uh, for for some other uh, or in some other verses, we have, uh, for example, as-sariqu was the thief, male and female, cut their hands, right? Uh, So sometimes uh, some punishments were uh, joined both genders together, but here it seems to me that it's more general and it's more addressing women as a delicate social group that if only grouped with others uh, can be wronged. This world uh, belongs to men, right? Right and let's imagine back uh, then how much it, it was uh, pretty much the same or even worse so it's dealing with uh sensitive groups with extra level of caution i would say and it's not alien to the quran to treat the elderly orphans and women as delicate groups that uh, needs to be given extra attention hmm. it's it, it, it matches the core uh, message in the Quran, I would say
0: the special, the, the specific, and special references to in particular individual groups, um, individuals right. or groups, um, right. it's representative of, of the vulnerable status of those particular individuals. Okay, so you argue that the Quranic idea that men have a degree of daraja um, higher than women refers specifically to daraja in the context of financial responsibility in case of divorce. Can you elaborate on this and how do you arrive at this conclusion?
1: Um, sure, with the, with the uh, meaning of Daraja again, uh, it's the simple methodology. It's what the text indicates. Uh, you know, Shahnaz, with, with many arguments, I just find myself just following the text. Uh, I learned only how to listen and how to listen carefully. Uh, for sure, what needs to be done first is to be open to the main idea of thinking out of the box. Second, to have more trust in what we do as modern scholars. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the following this tradition that no opinion can be considered sound unless you cite someone from the Salaf probably mm-hmm. affirming it, is right. what keeps us behind uh, in terms of uh, understanding the rich context of the Quran. Um, We can be, to the opposite, we can be more faithful to the legacy of the Salaf if we switch from the blind imitation to the active rethinking of the text, as they did. Uh, When it comes to the concept of degree or daraja itself, uh, it starts, uh, the the verse itself starts with addressing uh, divorce. And therefore, it, it can't be general. Um, and here we're uh, quoting from, I'm trying to find it, it's 228, right? Uh, The verse starts by saying divorced women uh, must wait for three monthly periods before remarrying. So the whole context of the verse is about uh, the financial responsibilities ex-husbands have in cases, and it, it will go from there. So I just read the beginning. I'm not going to be reading all of it. Uh, so it, it deals with the financial responsibilities ex husbands have in cases of divorce, which exceeds the ex wives' responsibilities. And this is a subcategory of uh, qiwama, which is, which is the financial duty of spending. We know, for example, that divorced women have the right to stay in their homes for three months. Uh, They have the the right to financial support for two years of their nursing, and they have the right to be supported uh, until they deliver if pregnant. All of these are rewardable duties, financial duties uh, uh, observing Muslim men can be rewarded for for, uh, submitting to. So the daraja the here is the extra respo- financial responsibility in case of divorce as divorce itself, the context itself, the, the, the Quranic text itself indicates. And it can't be generalized uh, to uh, indicate gender-based superiority, unfortunately, as many quote divorce to mean.
0: I think I think one of the key things that I'm also getting both from this interview and from the book is that, contrary to these you know very very academic arguments and very common arguments, the text itself does not speak, and that we speak for the text, and that the text says what we want it to say. And and as as you know, and we know that's true because we know that historically that's exactly what we have done. We can impose our own ideas onto that. We can project things onto the text. But what mm-hmm. you're suggesting is no, the text is clear. And there are, there are especially times when the text is clear, and here are some examples, um, and if we try to interpret the text outside of these other assumptions and these other expectations and um, these other interpretations where Daraja was you know, more applicable and you're suggesting it's no, it's very, very specific in this particular context, and this is what Daraja means, I think, that is, I think that's a very, very important argument. Um, mm-hmm. About you know the, the 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 role that the text itself, that the language of the text is playing in our understanding. So I thank you for that too. Uh,
1: right, you know because with patriarchal projections on the text, we moved from merely elaborating, explaining the text into contradicting the text and invalidating the text. Right, mm-hmm. and and therefore we see uh, so many arguments in the Quran just marginalized, ignored or even falsified, totally falsified, because the exegetical re- re- reproduction of the text was not uh, honest uh, to the text itself, they didn't match the text itself. Right. Let's talk about polygamy.
0: Mm-hmm. So you argue that there's a distinction between, and you're very clear about this, and I, I also think very convincing, that there's a distinction between Quranic polygamy and Islamic polygamy. So. Can you tell our audience what is this distinction, and also why is it significant that the verse permitting poly- poly- polygyny, four um, three, mentions orphans? What you're, do- what are you doing that's different from what other feminists have argued, in particular?
1: Now, it might strike one as odd that I'm making a distinction between what I call, uh, uh, and I get criticized uh, for for doing that, by the way, before, between uh, what is Quranic and what is Islamic, since the Quran is the sacred text of Islam. However, reinvestigating the conditional permissibility of polygamy or polygyny in the Quran contradicts which is very strict, uh, contradicts the leniency we see in the later judicial application of polygyny, which gradually moved from allowing polygyny under very strict conditions that can't be easily met and can easily be proven to have turned almost impossible in our more modern-day world, Uh, polygyny shifted very quickly uh, thanks to patriarchy from a strictly conditional uh, permissible solution allowed only for catastrophic community emergency cases, it turned into a recommendation. Um, The hegemony of male-centered interpretations and the absence of female active voices is what explains this development. Uh, No wonder um, if... uh, All proposals were introduced by males, male scholars, or female scholars who, except for a few, had to seek male approval, authoritative validation, and had to avoid criticism, marginalization, and ad hominem attacks by way of repeating male-centered arguments and glorifying patriarchy. The conditional permissibility in 4.3 starts with a conditional if sentence a very clear uh, conditional if sentence. The condition is a community fear of leaving behind displaced orphans, which limits the permissibility to mothers of orphans Mm -hmm. as plausible second wives. Second, the dialogue is again addressed to the community and not to husbands. This leaves no room to personal judgment and leaves the permissibility conditioned by what can be translated today to a court or congregation order. The evaluation of the existence of a realistic fear means that communities that have social security and a system that can allow the state to take care of those displaced orphans won't need even this type of solution. Finally, fairness between wives entails the approval, and I know this is a hard one, uh, many people won't like this, Fairness would entail the the full approval and blessing of the first wife as a condition uh, uh, according to the verse and according to the Qur'anic ma'roof rule of marriage, which I discuss also in the book, as a condition to the continuity of marriage, where women can't be mistreated in in marriage. Uh, The argument, Shahnaz, is more than I can summarize today. However, regardless of the details, It is sufficient just to mention that what traditionalists usually cite as reasons for the permissibility of polygyny, like most famously men's hypersexuality that can be satisfied with one partner, all these arguments are alien to the Quran, just alien to the Quran. No mention of any of them in the Quran. So they all can be grouped back again to
0: man-made projections. I always thought it was very convenient that scholars, that male scholars uh, in the past were like, oh, when the Quran says you can have multiple wives, as long as you are just to them, and they defined justice and fairness as, you know, in the very, very limited context of financial uh, financial um, maintenance, that as long as you are equally... Mm. Uh, you know, if I, providing for them, you're all good. And it's like, no, fairness and justice go beyond uh, beyond that as well. So, mm. so mm. let's talk about Maryam. So you are, who, by the way, is just one of my, well, my most favorite person in the Quran and probably in all of religious history and such an underrated person too. You argue in support of the idea that Maryam, uh, mother of Isa, mother of Jesus, was a prophet And the support for your argument goes beyond what we traditionally see by others who believe this too, who've who've made the similar argument. What are some reasons that led you to conclude that Maryam is a prophet, the Quranic reasons that you use?
1: Uh, Well, in the Quran, I find two different types of evidence uh, I refer to in the book. First is what I call the logical evidence in the Quran. And this includes details driven from her Quranic stories like witnesses, miracles, speaking to angels, what happened to all other prophets. But in addition, I add a linguistic evidence. And this is based on a new interpretation I provide for 334, uh, uh, which says the angels said to Mary, Mary, God has chosen you and made you pure, and chosen you above all women. Now, uh, back to language again, right, Shahnaz? Rethinking the repetition of the expression has chosen you twice in the same verse, uh, which is not random and can't be random in a text like the Quranic text, believed to be, by Muslims at least, to be a miracle, a literal miracle. Uh, nothing is believed to be random, right? Including but not limited to repetition of words and phrases. So according to a detailed analysis I provide, I argue that Mary was chosen not once, but she was chosen twice. The first time she was chosen, the way all other prophets are chosen. So a high rank, but she shares with other prophets, and we know other prophets are male prophets, uh, the second uh, type of choosing Mary uh, is unique for her now. And this is what is asserted in, in, in the verse as well. The second uh, mention of has it chosen you. This time, Mary is chosen above all women of all times, of all worlds. No wonder she's the only woman who will conceive from no male partner. So according to the first type, she she's not uh, uh, superior or nor inferior to any of the other prophets she's equal to them she's a prophet herself but the second uh uh, has chosen you refers to her as the best woman all times uh uh, all worlds Hmm. yeah
0: no that was a really really um that was very convincing i found that argument to be the the evidence that you gave in your analysis of the evidence was very convincing and very powerful
1: Thank, Thank you, you Shahnaz. And Ibn, we know Ibn Hazm and andalusi argued before for Mary as, as a prophet. Right. But even though I believe uh, uh, because his view didn't match the consensus of mainstream Islam, uh, it was just marginalized uh, when it came when it comes to the uh, affirming the prophethood of uh, a woman, including uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Right.
0: So, in chapter four on um, female body ownership, I was struck by some of what you say about hijab and the Quranic idea of the hijab and the role that it is supposed to play in a Muslim woman's life, and so on. The con- the conversation we had earlier uh, contextualized some of this for me, so I would love it if you can um, discuss that with the, with our audience as well. But I I was I, I had some trouble with this chapter, and I wondered if some readers might understand what you're arguing there to be pitting some women against other women, hijabis against non-hijabis, for example, um, or if there might be a a romanticizing of of the idea of the covering of the head, Um, you're very, very careful and you're very clear that the head covering is not all there is to the hijab, and since you speak of the hijab as a way of life, um, as a message to the outside world, um, but you imply that the hijab is a solution to certain social problems around us, um, you know, like women feeling more pressure to look pretty or show more skin, and so on. So, I I wonder if this suggests that hijabi women don't feel such pressure. And you explicitly say that no, it's not intended to curb har- harassment, but that there's some minor harm that it can pre- prevent. Um, so, I want to I want to talk about this chapter, and I want I would love for you to contextualize this chapter for us, walk us through some of your main points, um, what is inspiring these interpretations, these ideas. Um, you know, what is this minor harm? What role the hijab is supposed to play in a person's life? Uh, why? I mean, is it really generally the headscarf? Why is it gendered and things like that?
1: Mm-hmm. I, I like your question and I like the way you highlighted minor harm, because this is the reason the Quran provides for, for hijab. It's to avoid edha, right? To avoid adha, which I introduce or interpret as minor harm. Now, a big flaw with the pro-hijab arguments is when hijab is introduced as a protective tool, right? Women should wear hijab to protect themselves and to even shield themselves from men's uncontrollable sexuality. However, this victim-blaming argument, which wrongs women not once but twice, by demonizing women for harassment, uh, I see it as nothing but another way patriarchy has manipulated the text. However, contrary to to this claim, uh, the Quran, when read in isolation from these uh, views, uh, recommends hijab for Muslim Muslim women, recommend them to consider hijab, which translates to modesty, both in appearance and behavior, as one way, uh, not as the only way, as only one way out of other ways to communicate a healthy social message about their seriousness and their high expectations from uh, men around them. Avoiding ada, the Quranic word, uh, adha, is not the same as avoiding rape or harassment because ada, as I prove from analyzing the Quranic term, does not exceed minor harm. It doesn't and can't mean something as serious as those situations. To put it another way, Women, by using hijab as a visual image, can send a message or, let's say, a social gesture that complements their behavior and complements their verbal communication. This doesn't mean that non-hijabi women are less serious or devout than hijabi women. It only refers to tools that women can use to save time and effort. Uh, Because according to the the, the Quran, Muslim women are not expected to be interested or get involved in casual sex or pointless dating. So a visual image can help, for sure, a woman avoid awkward social situations, being asked out with a man who doesn't value marriage or who is not serious about it. Maybe a woman can be decent uh, with and without hijab. And uh, here... Uh, uh, you encourage me to make it clear, and therefore I, I don't want to be misunderstood here, uh, claiming that uh, modesty is reduced only to hijab. It's, uh, I would say it's one Quranic recommendation uh, uh, and advice given to Muslim women uh, if Quranic uh, recommendations are, are sought here.
0: Um, And this is one moment where I wonder about the usefulness of relying on the Quran alone for its interpretation. So for example, um, your interpretation of the hijab verse is that the Quran's initial audience was already familiar with the idea of head covering. And so it doesn't have to explicitly articulate that, Hey, cover your heads. Who is this audience? And what happens when the Quran gets interpreted in other cultural settings where, for example, the head covering is not a normal part of life. Um, you know, such that covering the head is not necessary or essential or something like that. Mm, mm. Or, or, or because the, because the or that or showing the head, um, not covering the hair would count as one of those things
1: that are acceptable to be revealed as the verse. Right. So, so uh, if I'm getting your question right, it's where are we getting our criteria from here, right? Sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, for me, and I'm going back to language, maybe this is uh, the, like, I lost the count with how many times I'm saying this, but I believe that the Quranic identification is uh, sufficient by itself to uh, prove that women should consider, in a way or another, the way they appear when I'm in, in public. Um, this is, I take as a Quranic argument, also, I take it as independent from the local context of the culture back in the pre-Islamic Arabia, because when we read, for example, and tell believing women that they should lower their gl- glances, uh, guard their private parts, and not display their charms beyond was, what is ac- acceptable to reveal, and then the Qur'an elaborates more by saying they should let their headscarves fall to cover their necklines. Uh, and uh, the word here used used is, is khimar. The command uh, to use khimar, uh, understood here as a headscarf that needs to be extended to cover the bosoms. Uh, I understand uh, a popular line of argument, of, 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 or argument uh, which claims that the command in the verse is to solely cover the bosoms and not to extend the headscarf to cover the bosoms as well. Uh, I I reject this argument because the verse does not satisfy by saying that the cover should be extended to cover the bosoms. We're not stopping there. The verse adds that women should not display their zina or beauty. And I don't think anyone would seriously argue that women's beauty is restricted to her private parts or her bosoms. Um, also, the, verb, uh, the, the, the verse mentions guarding private parts. This is also something I mentioned in the book, guarding private parts and not merely covering private parts. And this is a huge difference. Uh, and, and there's a huge difference between both expressions. But, but there's something else which I take even as, as more important than this, uh, which is uh, the what what comes what follows this command is when we read uh, which can be translated loosely to something like women shouldn't stamp their feet in order to reveal what is covered uh, now I take it as a revolutionary liberation message Uh from the seducer mentality. And this is the core argument here. Because when we speak about a modesty in behavior, modesty in, in, in dressing, modesty in everything, it should come from the inside. It's not something just related to the outside. Women can set themselves free only when they stop their internalization of female body objectification. Only when they stop both in behavior and appearance, seeking validation from the outside and from social norms that see nothing valuable in them other than their bodies, their sexual attractiveness, and force on them uh, demanding and unrealistic beauty standards. Uh, Here I should maybe also add that by... uh, that that any discussion on hijab, in fact, uh, shouldn't leave behind... Uh, affirming hijab as a free choice right like all other moral and religious obligations women bodies should be kept away from these endless battles between forced veiling and forced unveiling and finally uh, also i should uh, add that modesty both in behavior and appearance was addressed in the quran first to men and then it was addressed to, to women, I hope this clarifies a little bit uh, uh, of your concerns, Shahnaz.
0: I'm sorry, I didn't hear you because uh, there was a giant truck going around my house.
1: <laughs> I hope there. this clarifies a little bit. Yes, yes. But absolutely. Of course, there's there's a full chapter uh, in 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 the book about this. So I just tried my best. Look, here. It did absolutely.
0: I I just I wanted um, it, when we were talking also earlier about you know I mean we're living in Islamophobia. Let's be real and. Yeah. This particular chapter, I think, would be helpful to um, especially those non-Muslims who want to understand why a woman might want to cover her hair mm. or, you know, oh, my God, this is so oppressive, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, I wondered if uh, other audiences, because I imagine, I mean, I imagine the audience of this book to be so many, you know, beyond Muslims and beyond academics and, you know, it pretty much extends to everyone. Um, and so I wonder if, if, some, if some readers might... Um, you know, interpret particular passages or particular ideas that that you're sharing here to suggest something that I'm sure you did not intend. Um, So this is helpful. This is is helpful. Thank you. Um, In what forms does female agency appear in the Qur'an, the last chapter is on female agency? And can you talk to us about the different forms of female agency in the Qur'an?
1: Mm, mm. Uh, I can. This is this is easy. Although I have a full chapter on it, but I can give you a quick answer, Shahnaz. I always tell my students in the Quran: women are not created from men; they are not created after men, and and uh, more importantly, they're not created for men. In the eyes of God, women, as I argue in the last chapter, has a full independent political, religious. And economic agency, mm-hmm. and the, of course, the chapter will go into details right. with these three no. dimensions.
0: I, um, I, when we talk about the creation of um, humans in, in, in some of my classes, my students and my students read the you know the Quran passages on the creation of Adam, or the creation of humans, and they always ask, you know, what about Eve? How is she created? And we yeah. have so much fun unpacking that question because I ask them, why are we assuming? That Eve is supposedly, you know, she's going to be created separately or differently or, you know, that she comes from Adam's rib because that's the context they're coming at the, at the, at the text from. So, um, yeah, the, the various forms of the, you know, the, the individual agency, the individual individuality of the woman in the Quran. Um, thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us that we haven't discussed or that we didn't get to
1: discuss? Um, anything you want to elaborate on? I think I just want to thank you, Shanaz, for giving me this platform, for this opportunity. Uh, and personally, I would like also to thank you for your uh, big project, uh, uh, What Patriarchy, because it's a huge responsibility. So thank you. Thank you, Shanaz.
0: I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And thank you for your book. And now before we close, um, could you tell us what other projects you're working on currently that we can look forward to in the near future?
1: Uh, yes, sure. Uh, hopefully we can have in future another conversation like this one with a new book. Uh, currently, I'm finalizing a manuscript in which I reinvestigate the story of creation itself. Because in this book, I limited myself, as I made clear in a footnote, to the role Eve, Eve played in the, the, the story of creation or mm-hmm. the story of disobedience. Uh, and But I left behind Reinvestigating the story itself, which I'm doing in, 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 in this manuscript, which also deals with the questions uh, concerning the problem of evil, uh, the pain and suffering of children, the pain and suffering of animals, the difference between naming uh, the devil in the Quran as Iblis and Shaitan. It's not the same. Um, and as uh, like this book, I adopt the same methodology. Uh, and um, I'm finding, like this book, so many new interpretations uh, and new answers uh, to, uh, mo- you know, theolo- deep theological questions like theodicy and the problem of evil. Um, yeah, so this is my uh, my second uh, project. It's wonderful. I look forward
0: to it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Shahnaz. Okay, so that was my conversation with Abla Hassan about her recent book, Decoding the Egalitarianism of the Qur'an, Retrieving Lost Voices on Gender, published with Lexington Books in 2020. Thank you for listening, and I will see you again next time.